The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of Hanging with Toby Hooper, talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I am one of your Hanging with Toby Hooper co-hosts, Patrick Bromley, joined, as always, by a very sick but very game Heather Wixon. Hey, Heather. Hey, Patrick. Uh, Finally, finally, I've been, like, trying to track you down. Yeah. Usually I'm the one that's too busy. And I think your schedule has been more hectic than mine has. It's been a rough two months, but I'm glad that we are finally making the time to talk about this. Uh, I waited deliberately until you were sick. Yes. It's the only way to approach Texas Chainsaw. You have to be out of your mind. Susceptible to suggestion and then said, all right, let's do it now. Um, yeah, this is, I, I'll i be honest, I'm very intimidated by this episode, probably more than any other episode that we do. There will be a little bit of me that's like intimidated by the funhouse just because I want to get it right. But Texas Chainsaw, I mean, so much has been said, so much has been written that I very much am like, what are we going to say that's new or different? So uh, pressure's on, even- Heather. It's. I don't think the pressure's on. I think we're two cool kids sitting around having conversation about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Hmm. There's no pressure. I mean, dude, I had to be you in lost a lost freaking... me at cool kids. Yeah, we, you're you're one of the cool kids. You're cooler than me. <laughs> okay. Um, um, but like, I had to be in the documentary about it. Well, you didn't which... have to be. You were invited to well, be. No, and you're great I was in invited there. to be. I, I I honestly still haven't watched it. I hate watching myself. I watched really... it, and you're great. Am I? No, yes, you are. Because, okay, because, like, I'm in there with like real like filmmakers and shit, and like, yeah. I'm just me wearing Brian's Leatherface shirt because I wanted something cool. And my Texas Chainsaw shirt I have is from Two, so I wanted to represent the original properly. And I was like, all right, I'll get his Leatherface shirt. Um, and I, I was really nervous for that. Like, I think I watched it like five times before I did that interview. Um, and I didn't realize, like, I kind of was just like, oh, no one's going to ever see this. But then people were talking about it and it was supposed to originally play Fantastic Fest. And then rights were an issue because this was made for second, uh, second site over in the UK. And yeah. so thankfully I didn't have to go through the existential dread of seeing myself on a really big screen again. Um, <laughs> but it's, it, it's, that was to me, that was pressure. This, there's nobody else I would want to talk Texas Chainsaw Massacre with about than you. Well, so this is just nice us having a conversation about probably a boy. There, I I could catch a little flack for this, but I'm gonna say it. I think the greatest horror movie ever created in America. I would agree with that. It's. I think you could make a case for it. I think. I think somebody could make a case for The Exorcist that I would be willing to hear. I think 
you know that my personal favorite horror movie of all time is A Nightmare on Elm Street. And so somebody could make a case for that that I would be willing to hear. But if somebody were to ask me what is the greatest horror movie ever made, I would say The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Or it's Pet Cemetery 2. Uh, yeah, you know, or Scream 4. You know, we <laughs> all have our things. Uh, I, I The reason I say that, and again, this is coming from somebody who worships at the altar of Wes Craven. Um, I don't mean any disrespect to any of the other amazing horror movies that have ever come out and changed the landscape of horror. But I think there is such a ferocity and such a visceral nature to this movie that is so singular that it's often been imitated but has never been fully authentically replicated and i think there's movies that i mean we've had a billion exorcism movies we're saying this is there's a new exorcist to theaters um we've had some really good takes that have come close to what west did with nightmare on elm street um there's this indie movie called come true that i think does a really fantastic job of capturing some of the nightmare mythology kind of world building that West did in the original nightmare. But for me, Texas Chainsaw is such a unique entry. It's the, it's the best of low budget filmmaking. It's a nightmare to watch. It was a nightmare to make. <laughs> it was a nightmare for everybody involved pretty much. Um, and I just don't think that they're like, there's another movie like it. Like Exorcist, it's funny because um, I finally got Brian to watch The Exorcist. And I can't even tell you why for so long I had to like twist his arm. Um, and I, I argue it's probably the greatest movie made of 1973, um, genre or otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, there's, there's, there's something different to that the way Freed can approach that story versus just the lunacy that is encapsulated in Texas Chainsaw. So like for me, like if you're talking about like the greatest studio horror movie ever made, Exorcist Bar None, sorry. It's just, that's what it is. But I think when you talk about what Toby and everybody involved with that movie was able to achieve with nothing, like they're working with nothing. And the impact that it has had and what it created in its wake, um, I think it's untouched in that regard. And again, yeah. I say this as somebody who's literally, when she gets to move, gets to have her West Craven office. Right. And I mean, no disrespect to anybody who has come since, but I just don't think, I don't think there's another horror movie like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. I just going back to The Exorcist real quick. Um, I've probably only seen it twice and I admire, really? yeah, I admire its construction a great deal, but it's not a movie that does a ton for me in terms of like scaring me or unsettling me. And I think a lot of that has to do with just not having been raised religious at all. I get it. I get it. I think for me, like what really is effective for the exorcist is I think one, cause I grew up in a, pretty much a mother-daughter dynamic without like a father right here in my life right so there's a lot of that stuff that resonates with me now as an adult um and i think also too as i've gotten older i've really gotten to appreciate the plight of father Karras in that movie sure um and this man who is just so broken and he is it's such a crossroads in his own faith 
And I don't even think for me, the idea of faith, I don't even think is like, has to necessarily be a religious construct. Like I, I consider myself somebody who tries to live by like a certain moral code, yeah. but I don't tie it to a church or to some Bible or book or thing like that, because I don't, I don't think if, if you believe in God, I don't think you have to go and check into a building at 9 a.m. <laughs> on Sunday mornings to prove right. that. Right. Um, you know, but I was also, I was also raised Pentecostal, um, which is very different than Catholicism. Right. Um, so it's, it's weird, but it's funny that we're actually talking about the exorcist because when I was growing up, there were two movies that my mom <laughs> let me watch anything I wanted. Basically it was like, I mean, she rented me vamp when I was like nine years old, like who rents a stripper vampire movie for their nine year old? My mom did, but there was two movies that were on the no-no list. One was The Exorcist and one was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. I don't actually even think she's, she's seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, but I know The Exorcist scared her so badly that she slept with the lights on in her apartment for three weeks straight. <laughs> wow. um, yeah. So it's funny because it's like those end up being like penultimate like experiences. And I, I get what you're saying about The Exorcist too because I think first time I actually saw it finally um, was at a screening when I was at ISU on Halloween night and everybody there was like drunk and screaming and laughing. And it was just the worst way to watch the exorcist. Yeah. Um, and so it did, it did zero for me. I was like, this is the movie that my mom was so worried about. And so thankfully I was smart and rewatched it again when I got a little, you know, was a little bit older and in a much more appropriate environment. And that's when I was like, Oh, Okay. I get it now. Um, and I think honestly, the same thing for Texas Chainsaw. Like we snuck it. My babysitter, um, when I was renting movies from Dominic's, if you remember Dominic's used to have a video section, of course, which was amazing. And she actually worked part-time at Dominic's. So we got to just take movies for free and stuff like that. And one night we snuck Texas Chainsaw in there and we only made it to, I think the hook scene. And we were like, out, oh, we're done. <laughs> and then, and then I remember re-renting it um, in high school with my friend Vicky. And to be honest, maybe maybe Toby Hooper's right. Maybe Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a comedy, but we laughed through it. Like, I was like, wait, this is the movie? Like, this is so dumb. Like, this is like people just screaming. There's nothing scary about this. There's no blood, yeah. you know, and all yeah. this stuff. And then I was like, I, I, and I was telling Brian this. So it was like, a, once I got like into my 20s, got married and stuff, my ex used to work nights. And I used to love watching, like, especially during October, Turner Classic movies would always do like cool hollow, like horror movies late at night. So I'd always love to just turn the lights off in the house and freak myself out. And our family room was like on the, the lower level. And that's where I sat and watched movies. And one night they had, they had Texas uh, Chainsaw on. It scared the bejesus out of me. Um, and I was just like, how is this movie scaring me? Like, this is the movie I laughed at like less than 10 years ago. Like, what the hell? <laughs> um but it's I I guess I got smart and then I kind of realized like just how messed up that movie is. And it and again, it's like it's one of those things where like, you know, we'll talk about this, but like it being banned in countries and stuff like that, but it's all implied. Right. You know, the, the goriest part of it is when Leatherface like cuts his own leg on accident because he's an idiot. <laughs> um, you know. So like it, it's just so funny to me that this movie like has had such an interesting life. And I love when we were dealing when Beyond Fest was doing their COVID screenings at the drive-in, we saw it at the drive-in. 
uh, with the Evil Dead. Nice. And what a fun double feature. I, to be really honest, I've always been sort of lukewarm on the first Evil Dead. Mm. Uh, but that screening of it really sort of changed me. I like Evil Dead 2 more. I feel like it's a little more there. Yeah. Um, you know, and so like Texas Chainsaw, like at the drive-in, I I felt like I was in the 70s. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. it was just really cool to see it in that kind of environment. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've had such a really interesting history with this movie. And now because of the game, and we'll talk about more, but it's like we're kind of living the Texas Chainsaw Massacre lifestyle in this house <laughs> very, very often. <laughs> and it's pretty rad. <laughs> I did not grow up with the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I absorbed it mostly through pop culture, like Terror in the Aisles or Summer School. Uh, oh my I God, saw yes. a lot of like the highlights through other media, but didn't see the movie probably on, I probably saw it on VHS in high school and was kind of like, okay, you know, hadn't done like my deep dive on Toby Hooper yet. And he hadn't become my guy yet. That wouldn't happen until later. And and then I did have a chance to see it theatrically uh, when Dark Sky did their 4K restoration, and obviously that was kind of the best it ever played for me, just finally seeing it on a big screen with that insane sound mix. It's the oh loudest God, yes. a movie has ever been for me is the chainsaw at the end of that movie. And today I was rewatching it, um, and Erica was trying to work while I was watching it, and I said, like, you might want to move into the other room because the rest of the movie is just screaming. And she said, oh, thanks, and she moved uh, because yeah, at a certain point, it's just Marilyn Burns screaming for the entire movie, and I get why people would laugh to protect themselves from that, uh, or not get what the movie is trying to do. But I, I showed it to a class a couple of years ago, and it really still played very well. I haven't been able to the last few semesters because my classes have been split up over like two days and I don't want to break the movie up. I think it's robbing it of its impact. If you turn it off halfway and then say, okay, we're going to finish this on Thursday. So I haven't shown it. Um, Once I get another like night class that meets for three hours, I'm going to bring it back and see if it still works on today's students. That's awesome. Yeah. I was very fortunate to be able to be at that screening at the Vista where Friedkin did the Q and A. I know Hooper. that's on the 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 Blu-ray too, but I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. And I that was I I remember I, I think that was probably my second turning point with it was because of this. I, it really the sound mix on that movie. Oh my gosh! Destroyed me, and it's so interesting to me because again, this is a movie made for freaking peanuts, <laughs> and yet it shows you that if, like if you don't have a ton of resources to put into like you know, a superstar cast or crazy elaborate effects. Something just as simple as sound can make your movie go from like a five to an 11. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you just, the the sound, it was funny because we were watching it last night and it was like the, the one thing that stood out to me like a lot, and this sounds like so dumb, um, but it was like, it was the, the, Rustle like the rustling of Pam's like bracelet, like it kept sticking out to me. Interesting, which is such a tiny little thing, but it's like the little yeah. jingle jangle of her bracelet would like pop in 
to the sound every once in a while and it would catch my like attention where I was like, what is that? I was like, Hmm. oh, that's her bracelet. And again, it just shows you like all these little things matter. So like we were before this talking about movies where you can't see shit these days because they don't like their scenes or if their sound mix isn't great. Like it shows you, you can make a super low budget movie for like nothing. But if you have a really, if your technical aspects of it are on point, like you can just, you can totally move past any sort of like challenges you have otherwise. Um, And it all matters. Yeah. Getting nerdy sound. Sorry. (laughs) No, that's okay. It's, it's uh, deservedly. So, you know, I'm, I'm struggling because I literally just watched that documentary that I didn't know was on my Blu-ray. I just finally unwrapped my 4K disc from uh, Dark Sky. Uh, and it's I beautiful, thought, isn't it? it? It's unbelievable. I thought the documentary was only on the Second Sight release. So I was like, well, damn it. I bought the wrong one and now I'm not going to get to see Heather. Uh, but the second disc has the documentary. And so I watched it and it's great. Um I'm trying so hard not to like repeat things that were talked about in the documentary. But one of the things that's talked about is the sound and in particular, the score and or lack thereof that instead of a traditional score, it's just this sort of nightmare soundscape credited to Toby Hooper. And uh, it's so effective again, as you said that the movie really understands how to, make the most out of its limited resources. Um, It says, here's what we have to work with. How can we make this whole thing played play like an exposed nerve? And that's exactly what it does. And uh, I'm sure we'll double back to this. I know we talked about it a little bit on our eggshells episode, but you know, this movie is the best and worst thing to happen to Toby Hooper. It's the best and worst thing to happen to him. Pretty much everybody, I think, who was involved with Texas Chase, uh, to be really honest. Um, but I to, just to touch on that just really quickly, I think, you know, when you, when you talk about score in Texas Chainsaw, like, I think if you would have had a traditional musical score for this, I don't think it would have worked. And I think that's what I appreciate with, like, certain found footage movies, because this does feel like cinema verite. Like, it, does, yeah. it feels real. It feels authentic. It feels like you could reach out and touch the sweat on people's faces and things like that. Like I feel that's why it's so scary. And so for me, when you have found footage movies that inject some sort of score into it, I'm out because I'm just like, why, why would you do that? Well, it makes like, no I think, sense. Right. You know, yeah. you're, you're calling attention to the fact that it's a movie and I'm, and I'm so of two minds about Texas Chainsaw because it is incredibly visceral and immediate and, you know, when people describe it as being this snuff film, I get what they're responding to. Um, a musical score would have put air quotes around it and said, it's okay, it's safe, it's just a movie, it's just a movie. Yeah. And yet, Daniel Pearl's cinematography is, like, so formal and beautiful and very much a movie. So I'm, I, I struggle to figure out, like, what is where is the disconnect because this looks and functions like a formally composed beautifully shot movie 
And yet the images that it's capturing are sweaty and grimy and nightmarish and feel so in your face that I get why people have that memory of like, oh, it's a snuff film. It feels like a documentary. It actually doesn't. It's not shot documentary style at all. And yet everything about it feels so real and visceral that that's what people take away from it. A, a, a score would have been like an extra layer of protection against that feeling and would have fucked it yeah. up. No, totally. I think also too, your reaction to that is it, it makes sense because there are parts of the movie, like obviously, you know, when Pam is walking up to the house, I mean, it's like the iconic shot. I don't remember. Coming that shot up. <laughs> um, you know, and it's, it's, it's gorgeous and it's, you know, but at the same time, then you have those those really close up, like almost too close up, like shots on Sally when she's in the chair yeah. in her eye, and you can like count the veins in yeah. her eye, where you're like, I shouldn't be this close to this poor woman. Um, and so there's like that 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 back and forth. I think that Daniel Pearl plays with the camera in this. Yeah, is the reason why I think. Because I think as much as that iconic shot, again, of Pam walking up to the house is what it is, I think it's those shots where, you know, Pearl is right in everybody's faces. That is, that's why it feels so fucking real. Do you think it has anything to do, too, with people, like, experiencing it for the first time on, like, a shitty drive-in print or a shitty VHS that, you know, they're it does it feels like a thing that you are not supposed to be seeing in that context oh i'm sure i mean i can't even imagine because especially because if i'm remembering correctly didn't this like run for like six or eight years or something like that at different drive-ins so i can't even imagine what those prints looked like by the end of that (laughs) and then then if i'm remembering correctly because that was kind of like shortly after is when like my mom started establishing a little bit of rules i think um even though i was only three but like there were certain movies like at five i wanted to watch no no you're not watching these um but there was a re-release of i think two in the early 80s that came out so it's like you know i think it's like that that idea of like it's just a thing that won't go away like it it just lingered in the subconscious of moviegoers for so long that and it felt again so different than things that were coming out around it for such a you're talking like like almost 10 years of time yeah like that people i think have just it, they've sort of mandela affected themselves thinking yes. that they saw things in that movie that they never saw well 100 percent. you know um like they should have just called this movie like texas chase massacre the mandela effect because it like <laughs> i think it created it well, Almost, everybody's you know, positive they movie. see the hook go into Pam's back. Like, no, to the degree I mean, that I've talked with people who are like, the version I saw had that shot in the movie. And they took it out. It's like, no, that never happened. You are imagining that. Yeah. And for me, like, I was a lot like you in terms of, like, a lot of my familiarity with Texas Chainsaw for a long time, um, other than watching up to the point where Pam, like, Pam goes in the hook, is through Terror in the Isles. Yeah. Um, so I knew even from watching Terry the Isles, you don't see the, the hook going her back. Right. I mean, I know they actually re-edited some scenes in that, 
to like fit the vibe, like the 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 the, the, the vibe and the movement of the movie itself. But no, like you, it, that's just never a thing that happened. It's also it's funny because I, I I put on poltergeist a lot while I work and such poltergeist like very lightly um right now in the background where <laughs> everybody was like, no, that movie was like the house was on you know Native American prop you know right. land and stuff like that, and it's like no, that's just a joke in the movie, right? Like that never that was never a thing. Like I don't, it's it's on a cemetery. That's it. Right. Just a regular standards old cemetery. Um, you know, so people it's funny what people will convince themselves of. Um, you know, because like I, for years I remember even thinking before I re-rented in high school, they're like, Oh, it's the goriest horror movie ever made. And I think that was part of the shock where I was just like, There's no gore in this. Like, what's yeah. going on? You know, and I mean this is at the after the point of like me and my stupid friends like renting faces of death and shit like that, because that's what you did in the nineties. Um <laughs> You know, so it's just so interesting to me, like the legacy of this movie is just it's almost like its own mythology of American subculture in a lot of ways, because mm-hmm. there's so many things that were convinced that either happened on the movie or didn't happen with the movie. Like it's it's endlessly fascinating to me. Like I've heard so many different stories about like if we're going to compare it to another low budget watershed moment in horror of Halloween, mm-hmm. but yet. Everybody can corroborate those stories. You can have 10 different people involve a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and they're going to have 10 different stories <laughs> about what happened on that particular night. And I find that so fascinating. Like, yeah. drugs are crazy, kids. Like, they will make- <laughs> I was reading a story um, about, oh gosh, which I don't, is she, I don't think she's related to Daniel. Is. Um, is Dorothy Pearl, was she married to Daniel Pearl? I don't know. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. But anyway, like one day, like she decided to make brownies for everybody, but she didn't tell them that she put a shit ton of pot right. in them. Right. And then that was the day that Toby's mom came to set. <laughs> and everybody was literally losing their minds while shooting. I'd already this like crazy tight schedule of like five weeks or whatever. And you, I'm. I want to know if any of that stuff is actually in the movie. Right. I would love to know because everybody apparently ate the crap out of those brownies, and then like I, I was reading like how like Gunnar Hansen had never done drugs before, and ate like two brownies, not knowing that there was weed in them. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't even imagine what that would do to somebody's system, despite the fact that he's like ten foot, ten feet tall. Right. Like, right. Like he's a big dude, but like. That has to mess you up. Like, I, so, like, that's why I think this movie is so fascinating is because you just, you just can't get to the bottom of it. And I think that's cool. To me, that is like pure renegade filmmaking. Yeah. A lot of people got hurt along the way. It wasn't the safest set. Toby probably made a lot of really bad decisions, whether it was between money and what he put his actors through. But holy shit, look at the results. Yeah, and there's there's certainly people who would argue against that and say no results are worth what they did on this movie, and everyone is certainly entitled to hold. I get their, it. I yeah, get it. their own opinion. You know, our job as critics or as fans is not to determine a cause of death. We're just here <laughs> to examine the body. You know, and like. The body is awesome. Like <laughs> the movie, yeah. 
the results do speak for themselves and and we can disagree about how they got there and that's fine i don't think they were responsible in the making of this movie and it's a bunch of fucking hippie kids from austin like they didn't know what they were doing and that too is in the movie because they didn't even necessarily always know which rules they were breaking they were just making what felt right or you know toby hooper just has long said he wants to make movies that grab you by the throat and horror has never grabbed you by the throat longer or harder than the texas chainsaw massacre no totally um it was interesting because like i was doing a bunch of research for this um and i was reading the story because you know i i i don't know much about like the texas film scene of the 70s um which again i think is one of the reasons i really love doing this is because i'm learning a lot as i go um because like when we did eggshells and stuff like i was like trying to like find out more about like what was going on sure uh because i I love austin as a city and i think it's you know it's it's a really fascinating town that has a rich history when it comes to like cinema and things like that especially like some of the talent that has come out of it toby being part of that um but i was reading this and you probably know this i'm probably just telling you a story you've heard but like i loved how like he before texas chainsaw like he was just hanging out he randomly just showed up i think he knew somebody but I never read who he do, um, but he was hanging out like the set of Love and Molly, which I think is an Altman movie, which also is what uh, where Franklin is from and how like he apparently had some chicken wings on a plate and Altman's like, do you work on this movie? And he was like, no, and he's like, put the chicken back um, and then kicked, <laughs> kicked him off the set. Um, but that it's, it, it's that movie itself actually has a lot of connections to Texas Chainsaw because apparently uh, Blythe Danner had like dropped out of that project and Marilyn Burns was actually supposed to play her part. Oh, and wow. then what and then Blythe came back on. I think she'd just given birth to Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh my gosh. Um, Gwyneth yeah, Paltrow so, ruins everything. Right. And so she was only like a few weeks old when they were making that movie. Um and then um oh my God, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. So I have to look at re- really quickly. And then Paul Partain uh is I think actually in it. If I'm not mistaken. Is it um, Love and Molly? I think so. It says he's uncredited. Yeah. So he's in it, but he's like not in it. You right, know. Right. Um, but that was where he met Toby. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting, like I just didn't realize like these little th- I love through lines when you yeah. can kind of like find out like, you know, because it's like these days directors always sort of have like their their go to actors and things like that. Um, and so for me, it's just interesting, like, to kind of put those little pieces in place where it's like, well, how would he have found Marilyn or, you know, <laughs> or Paul? Like, cause like Marilyn was like a stage actress for so much of her career and things like that. Um, but yeah, I just like the idea of Toby Hooper showing up to eat some chicken, which apparently everybody on that movie hated because it was blackened in barbecue. And mm. apparently the East Coast people didn't understand what liquid smoke was. Okay. Cause they're a bunch of snobs. Right. No good barbecue. Right. Um, and meat is meat. Actually, that's 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 from uh, Motel House. Sorry, that's wrong okay. cannibalism movie. That's okay. <laughs> so, but yeah, I just it's to me, it's like I love this kind of shit. Like I love this sort of history where you have to like keep digging because you just don't know. Like I right. watched the the documentary, the Family Portrait one, where they talk to yeah. 
Edwin Neal, Jim Seidau, and Gunnar Hansen, um, and John Dugan. And it was just really interesting to like hear their stories, but they're all just a little slightly different. Like, right. like the main crux of it is the same, but there's these little things where you're just like, does anybody even remember what the hell happened on this movie? Like, well, and Gunnar Hansen. Go ahead. I didn't. Oh uh, no, no, you go ahead because I I didn't get a chance to read Gunnar's book. It's been a few years since I read it, but I think his book, which I believe only recently went back into print. It did um, by our publisher, by the way. <laughs> um, I think is going to become the the historical document of record because he was kind of first to put it down. I think that's going to be the thing that people point to and say, well, here's how it happened, which isn't to say that it's not how it happened, because as you point out, everybody's stories are a little bit different. And maybe Gunnar Hansen's is the most accurate. Unfortunately, so many of the principals involved with this movie have passed on um, that it's harder to get to corroborate a lot of these stories, but because Gunner was kind of first in terms of documenting the whole thing, like from a personal perspective, like I was there. Um, I feel like people are going to point to that as being the thing, even though there's been plenty of interviews and, you know, before Gunner, yeah, it's it 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 is really fascinating in that way. Um, I, yeah, I don't know why I never read the book. To be really honest, because it's like totally like I I love that kind of stuff, and especially yeah. when it's centered around like horror and things like that. I don't know why I didn't get to it, but I was really happy when they announced uh, for the quote unquote Texas Chainsaw Day because it was the 50th anniversary of the events of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, not its release, but the events. Right. Um that they were going to put the book back out again because I, I think it might be out of it might have been out of print it was yeah um you can I, you might have been able to get it on kindle which is how i have it and how i read it and it's like 10 bucks uh which is pretty nice um i love my kindle but honestly i love flipping a page oh me too i would never choose to read a book on a kindle uh, but for whatever reason, that's how I read that book. Uh, but it is back in print and you can get it for like 20 bucks. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So let me ask you this and maybe I'm getting way ahead of ourselves here, but like you brought up Halloween. I, I don't think there's an ahead of, I don't, <laughs> like, I don't think we have an ahead of ourselves. We're just having a conversation and I think it's cool. So well, you brought up Halloween it. and it's so easy to point to Halloween and say, here's exactly what it inspired. Here's exactly what comes out of Halloween. I don't think yeah. you could do that with Texas chainsaw and, and like, I know that it's hugely influential. Even the documentary that you are in talks about how it's really the first horror movie to focus on young people. I mean, even that novelty changes horror forever. Um, there's a lot of things that, you know, the based on a true story aspect, like even Blair Witch is doing that 25 years later. Um, but I can't point to like a specific subgenre of movies or 
the way I can with Halloween and say like, well, slashers, I know it's not the first slasher, but it was the one that was so successful that like slashers became a thing because of Halloween. I can't, I do what, what, what does Texas Chainsaw beget? I honestly, I don't think you get evil dead without Texas Chainsaw. And I know it's different. I know there's demon, demon forces in evil dead, but I think again the sort of tenacity of indie filmmaking, yeah, um, that comes comes along the the kind of DIY um, spirit. Yeah, I don't yeah. think you get Evil Dead without Texas Chainsaw. Um, I just literally quoted Motel Hell. I don't think you get <laughs> Motel Hell without Texas Chainsaw because that's like the funny Texas Chainsaw. Uh, was Texas an amazing Chainsaw quote. Two is the funny Texas Chainsaw. Well, you you get the funny version of the original Texas Chainsaw. All right. Uh, even though, even though, again, you know, Toby Hooper has said, comedy. yeah, the first one is supposed to be. I funny. was like, man, put the drugs down. There's no <laughs> way that movie is funny. There are um, things that are funny, although I would argue, like Leatherface freaking out and like looking out the window, like, oh, what kind of trouble am I in? Is funny, but it's also like sad because you're watching an abused child like worried about what's going to happen when his family comes home and so there's a lot of um as you point out again i i shouldn't have watched this documentary because i'm just repeating it i think you are the one in the documentary who points out like the humanity in leatherface so i do think that moment is comic and funny just given what it is that he's freaking out about and given his size and his what he's wearing and yet he's still like this worried teenager uh he's not even a teenager he's a little kid really in texas chainsaw he's a he's a teenager in part two um yeah but there's not a lot in the first texas chainsaw that i'm like well this is clearly meant to be funny yeah no not at all um but yeah i don't think you get the wrong turn movies without texas chainsaw um I don't think you get uh, Hills Have Eyes without Texas Chainsaw. Especially because I think Wes Craven, there was like a, a fun quote in this article I was reading where he called it like one of the most sadistic, like th- this is coming off of a guy who just made Last House on the Left and he called it one of the most sadistic films he's ever seen. And I was like, dude, do you know what you just did? Yeah. Like, it's like, whoa. Um, yeah. I wonder, I, don't, I wonder what he means by that. Is Is the... Are the on-screen depictions sadistic, or is it sadistic in terms of how it won't let its audience off the hook? Yeah, I think it's the presentation. Okay. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I mean, and if you talk about, like, newer movies, I don't think you get, like, something like Wolf Creek without it. Okay. Because like, that's, like, the Australian Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. You know? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of movies that... It, it's funny because I think... To me, people call Texas Chainsaw Massacre a slasher movie. I don't think that's right. But I don't know how to define it. I don't think it's a movie that has an easily definable quality, which, again, I think is why it's so scary. Like, it's rural, gritty horror. But, like, if you have to put it into a box, what what box do you put it into? Rural horror? I guess. <laughs> there's you know? kind but of a... I don't there's... Think it's a yeah, I don't I don't consider it a slasher by like typical standards. I get that it's about a group of young people being killed off. I get that they're sort of killed off one by one after being separated and there's a a singular killer even though the whole family are killers. In on it. 
it's yeah. Leatherface that's essentially doing it. So there are a lot of like slasher tropes, but you know, there's a whole cycle of like 1970s like survival horror. And I feel like that's sort of the subgenre that this kicks off because even a lot of those modern movies, whether it's Wolf Creek or uh, High Tension to some extent or uh, the remake of uh, Hills Have Eyes, you know, they're all sort or even Wrong Turn. They're all sort of in that survivalist horror camp. Yeah. Where the goal is just to get through it. Like, it's not about defeating evil. It's just like, can you get through the night? Um, I think for me, yeah. I was going to say with slashers, usually in slashers, there's a moment of awareness that happens, right? Where everybody realizes, like, there's like a, the oh shit moment. And you're like, oh, I now have to survive. And I think for me, because Texas Chainsaw, it's just like, they go into the house, they're done. They go into the house, they're done. And it's right. just like, there's no moment where Sally or even Franklin up until the point when, when Leatherface kills him, that they're even aware that there's right. danger around right. them. Right. It's just they're going to look for their friends who are probably off goofing off. Um, so I think it's that moment of awareness that you don't get in Texas Chainsaw, which one, I think makes it that scary, that much mm-hmm. scarier, but also two sort of separates itself from what we've seen from different slasher movies where like in Halloween like Lori's night's going fine her friends are all getting late or whatever and like but she has she's like wait something's off and she has to have that moment of discovery when for Sally like that moment of discovery comes when like Leatherface sticks a chainsaw through her brother's stomach right and she's like that's it there's no (laughs) like aha moment it's like oh shit moment and that's it Right. You know, and then it's like game on for her and the rest of the movie is her being basically tortured. <laughs> um so yeah, so I think it's like that that little that little light switch that usually flicks on during a slasher that just never happens in Texas Chainsaw, which again I think is the power of that movie. Yeah. You know. Because even when Jerry walks into the house, he still doesn't even know that like his friends right. have been killed. Right. Like he's not even worried about the fact that the, their blanket is laying over the railing <laughs> of the front porch. Like you know, there's a moment like before, um, it, like at the start, like before Kirk goes into the house, he literally hands Pam a tooth, a human tooth. Do you know what I would do if I was at a house and a human tooth was just laying there? I would leave. I wouldn't go inside. Um, also, speaking of the porch, it reminds me of, I don't think we would have parts of the verbs without Texas Chainsaw. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of riffs on Texas Chainsaw. I mean, especially Texas Chainsaw, too, because it shows up. He's in the literally movie. watching it, right? Yeah. Um, so I think, like, that was, to me, that was, like, Joe's little love note to Toby. Like, I get <laughs> you, man. Um, so, yeah, like, like that's such unawareness of danger that you're like i'm holding a human tooth this is not a normal thing to be laying on somebody's porch but i'm gonna go in anyway <laughs> like uh, what no go i don't want to spend too much time on the sequel or not the sequel uh the remake um but would you agree the remake sort of recasts the whole thing as a traditional slasher 
I think it does. I think it does. It does it more. I mean, I think the problem is, is with the remake, not the problem, because I actually really like the remake. Um, I think the, the thing with the remake is, is because we already have an awareness of what Texas Chainsaw is, those oh shit moments have to play differently. Do you right. know what I mean? Right. Okay. Because I think anybody going in like already immediately knows like this is fucked. Like we're 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 in it. Like these kids, you know, good luck. <laughs> See you on the other side, maybe. Um, so I think it it has to play it differently because I think if they would have played some of the beats the same in the remake that they did in the original, I don't think it would have worked. Because it's it's a different temperature in terms of movie going audiences. Like we were already sort of in this mo- movement of American st- extremism in horror. Right, right. Um, idiots like to call it torture porn. It's not torture porn that doesn't <laughs> actually exist. Um, it's basically, you know, our horror, at, you know, in the 2000s at that time was a reflection of our collective, you know, response to French extremism and also 9-11. Right. You know. And it was just we were we were working some shit out in the two thousands collectively as horror fans, um, so I I think you have to play it differently. I think you have to find different ways to crawl under people's skin, um, and I think they do it. I think they do it really well. And you know, there's some pretty crazy shit in that movie. I was actually surprised at how much I really liked the Texas Chainsaw remake. Um, the beginning though. Or beginnings or whatever the second the second one to that one was i made the mistake of watching that the night before i had to go in for surgery mm-hmm. not a good idea not a good <laughs> idea because i hated it i've never rewatched it since yeah, um, i'm not really a a fan of either one but uh yeah i don't mind the remake because i think at that point also too i hadn't re-fallen in love with the original sure like my my mileage might be different with it now than it was seeing it then. And I haven't watched it probably in 10 years. I think, so, I think we as horror fans though, I don't mean all horror fans. I mean, you and me specifically are able to divorce ourselves from the source material when watching a remake. So yeah. it's not, I don't, I don't think that you're sort of, rejuvenated respect or admiration for the original would color your the way just as my affection for the original isn't why i don't like the remake um totally get it yeah 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 i think too also like i i think because i'm you know we're older now so we've lived through like how many decades of remakes yes like we've been watching remakes since we were kids so like whatever at this point right exactly i mean i I always joke, I'm like, look, at least they never remade Point Break. That's all I got to (laughs) say. Because, you know, once you cross that line, like, you can't come back from that. So I'm I'm fine with the fact that they keep going back. I mean, to a point, I was fine with the fact that they kept going back to the Texas Chainsaw well because Toby got paid every time and he didn't get paid off of this one, you know? Right, exactly. Like, nobody made any money off of this one. So thank God they remade it and thank God they sequelized it because finally some, you know, they got to see some money from this uh, movie. Now that Toby's gone, I'm less enthused when we get the, you know, the fifth sequel in the third timeline and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of folks hated the new Netflix one that came out last year. Um, 
I actually really liked most of it. I okay. hated what they did with Sally. Sure. Um, but I, but I, I, there, I think there's actually some pretty good stuff in there. And honestly, like, I will always be happy with seeing privileged kids getting fucked up because um, I've <laughs> never been a privileged kid. Um, so I'm just like, whatever. Your Tesla can't save you now. Um, you know, and I'm okay with that because that's what the original was. Like, yep. that was Toby saying, like, these sheltered kids go into this area that they have no business being in. And yet they just, they walk into this with such reckless abandon because they think they can. And guess what happens? The worst things imaginable. And I'm not saying they deserve it, but they shouldn't have been there. Like they even said, like, you know, the old man slash cook, you know, as we find out he is um, basically tells them at the beginning of the movie, like folks don't like when you go messing around on their property. Yeah. So what do these idiots do? They go mess around on this property. (laughs) And guess what happens? You die. (laughs) <laughs> and I'll tell you, like, I mean, it, 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 it's funny because I really I do miss getting to drive out to Austin uh, twice a year. That was like my favorite thing, because it's like there's a point where like it stops being fun and it gets a little creepy. Sure. And you're like, OK, maybe I'm going to go a little bit faster because I need to get to a regular populated area as soon as possible, because there's a lot of houses just out there because I was taking a lot of state highways. Right. And you're just like, oh, my God, if I break down here, I'm dead. I know this and I travel by myself, which I'm still just like, whatever, um, <laughs> probably the stupidest thing, but what, you know, I got a knife and some pepper spray. I'll sort of make it maybe to the second reel. Um, you know, and it's like, you just don't go doing these things. And I think, you know, I know it's it sort of gone back and forth. Cause I remember Toby talking about how this was sort of a reflection of where seventies culture, like, what was going on in 70s society in terms of like we had, they had Watergate, the falling outs of the Vietnam War and things like that. But he he was a hippie, but he wasn't super political. But I do think that there's a lot to be said in this movie about sort of a reflection of what America's involvement in the Vietnam War was. Because we went into this country that right. we were so fully unprepared for. Right. And look what it did to all of those those men that went over there to fight. Right. Like it screwed up like that entire generation. Yeah. And I've seen it firsthand because I saw a lot of my friends' dads being totally fucked up because of Vietnam Yeah, in so many different ways. Some would talk about it. Some wouldn't like it. It was, it was kind of crazy to see what that, that experience did to them. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's like, this is like, you go into this area you have no business being in and you like, look at the way Sally is when she comes out of it in the back of that truck. Right. I genuinely believe in that moment that Marilyn Burns is insane. And she probably was at that point. You know what I mean? Like, I think like he went through the shit on that movie, even though I know she was slightly protected because I think one of the producers, she might've been dating at the time. So I know a lot of the cast members like got pissed at her because she would like go hang out in his air conditioned car while the rest <laughs> of everybody else was dealing with like 120 mm. degrees heat shit like yeah. that. But I but she got beat like she legitimately got beat up, got cut. Yeah, like, she still had to jump through a window. I mean, she jumped through a window. She had like extremely really bad rope burns on her arms. Yeah, yeah. because there was no protections. Yeah, and so when I see her in those final moments, like. I feel like it's real. Yes. I feel like that is like one of the biggest moments of catharsis 
that I've ever seen in horror. And I, it's funny to me because I just rewatched um, Rob Zombie's Halloween. And, oh, nice. And the, the director's cut. And it's that scene at the end when Lori shoots Michael and then she's just screaming with the blood yeah. face. I guess I never dawned on me that that's his Sally Hardesty moment. Right. Until I rewatched it like a couple of nights ago. Um, and again, I think that's another filmmaker um, who oh, yeah. <laughs> owe, owes his career to Toby Hooper. Like he should have been, he should have just been writing Toby checks for, you know, basically until Toby died. It stands to reason that I love Rob Zombie as much as I do because I love Toby Hooper so much and no filmmaker is more indebted to Toby Hooper than Rob Zombie. Um, but yeah, like we just actually in the last week we watched House of Thousand Corpses. We watched uh, both of his Halloweens. And yeah, I was just like, I was like, oh, this is perfect leading up to Texas Chainsaw Massacre because he like so own like owes so much of what he's become known as yeah as a filmmaker because of you could tell his love for toby hooper yeah um you know because house of thousand corpses is very much texas chainsaw one and two amalgamated into this one movie devil's rejects is definitely owes a lot to texas chainsaw um and you know and even his halloween movies like it just didn't dawn on me until like rewatching. i was like oh right shit okay it's even here um you know, so I, it's, you know, when you say like, it, it's, it's funny because I think again, it sort of goes back to me not being able to put Texas Chainsaw in this one singular box. It's influence. I don't think you could just draw one singular line. Right. To where we are fi- almost 50 years later in the horror genre. But there's all these little like right. lines that come out. And you're like, you don't have this without Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You don't have this without Toby Hooper. And it's just, it's really fascinating. Like, I think, I'm not saying there's any dispensable horror masters out there. I don't think there is. But I think Toby is one of those, his influences are so, like, buried deep in ways that you don't see. Like, for example, when, like, I'm watching Malignant, I can get the Italian influences and I see the Argento and I see the Fulci and I can immediately pinpoint those things. But I think the way Toby Hooper made movies and particularly Texas Chainsaw is there's just, it's almost like you have to pull back layers to get to that point where you're like, Oh, now I get it. Mm -hmm. You know? And I'm probably just like talking out of my butt at this point, but like, no, not at all. Again is why I'm just like, I, there's been plenty of horror movies in the last 50 years. We've had thousands of them, but there's only been one Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. You know? Yeah. And I think that's what I was getting at in terms of like, it didn't create a subgenre. It didn't create a movement in horror. You're absolutely right that there's all these different threads. It's just like for, for being such a watershed movie, because I would argue it changed the face of horror in general but it's like it's harder to pinpoint the places where those little revolutions are happening they're they just happen to be all over the place you know as you pointed out yeah yeah and i think that again it's just like i don't know that there's many other horror movies out there that are sort of is that widespread in a way like 
you can all you can pretty much like when Freddy Krueger shows up in the horror genre in '84, mm-hmm. you can you can almost find like that that direct back and forth that happens because of that. Where like Texas Chainsaw, it's like you're like, wait, is this like it's it's such a different natured project in such a way that like. I don't know if it's because of the fact that like one, it was sort of notorious in its time. Mm-hmm. And and as we sort of joked about at the beginning, and we could talk about that more, that it kind of ruined so many careers in ways. Like it made but also ruined careers, which is hard to believe. Right. Um, that almost people are like almost proud to say that their movie is like a take on Nightmare on Elm Street, where like, is there still sort of a taboo that comes with Texas Chainsaw? I don't know. I think its reputation has been reclaimed enough that Yeah, I mean time is time heals a lot of wounds. And and for anybody to compare their movie to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, you know, kind of the height of hubris. Like if they're trying to say like Good luck. Yeah, my movie <laughs> is in the vein of Texas Chainsaw like, oh, sure it is. Um it's so funny because for almost every other Toby Hooper movie, I, I'm running through so many of his movies in my head and I'm like, okay, yeah, I could see his influences in putting this movie together. You know, I know where this comes from. I know where this comes from. Texas Chainsaw seems like just born out of the dirt. There aren't other movies that I can point to and say, oh, Toby Hooper's drawing on this or this or this. Uh, it's it. It feels just so insanely original for a movie that is very basic and sort of primal. Yeah, I was trying to think about that, too, in terms of like, well, when he watched something that like maybe influenced him. And the only thing I could really think of, maybe, and I don't know that he's seen it because I know that he has talked about interviews, how this idea was he knew he wanted to do something isolated he wanted to do something in the woods. He wanted to do something that was authentically Texas. Um, but he wasn't quite there. And then it all happened. It was like Christmas of 72. <laughs> and he was stuck in like the the craziness of Christmas shopping at yeah. Montgomery Ward of all yeah. places. R.I.P. Montgomery Ward. Um, R.I.P. And, and he happened to be in the chainsaw section and how he just dreamt of literally revving up a chainsaw and just cutting through everybody just to get the hell out of the store. Oh my God. Um, and, and thus a nightmare was a cinematic nightmare was born. Right. But I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering if, and again, I know he was also inspired by night of the living dead because that was Romero going out, shooting a movie that like on his own terms without studio involvement, things like that. Um, but there's part of me, and I, it's only because I saw it finally in the late 2000s, where I was just like, how did Toby not see this and be a little bit inspired? And that's 2000 Maniacs. Okay. Because that, like that was like about a decade before, I think, if my yeah. timing is correct. And like, there's a lot of, it's, you know, it's, it, it's got a little bit of a same vibe to it. And it's sort of like just a madhouse of a movie. Okay. You know, and again, it's by Herschel Gordon Lewis, who is sort of the, was this pioneer of independent filmmaking, especially horror movies during the '60s and pushing things right. in ways people weren't expecting. But then I also think it's funny that in the same term that he's making a movie called Te- Toby's making a movie called Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but he wants teenagers to be able to see it, so he's aiming for a PG rating <laughs> in a movie with massacre in the title. 
what a madman like why would you think that could he be a thing? was a crazy person and i love him I so much that's what's the beauty of toby hooper where he was like he actually it was funny i was reading this article he did he, this interview he did uh with i think it was like the texas tribute or something years and years before he passed away and he was talking about how like once a week he would call the mpaa and ask them for advice on how to get a pg rating <laughs> and one of the things was the hook scene where he was like okay so if somebody was to be hung up on a hook what don't you guys want to see right and they're like penetration and blood and so that's what he does, and he still gets the R rating. <laughs> because the whole movie has the atmosphere of violence. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you can't cut tone. You can't cut atmosphere. And the whole movie feels scary and assaultive and violent. And even though you don't ever see any gore, those are things that are easy to cut. But you can't cut around what that movie manages to do. And there was just no way with a movie this intense that it was ever going to get a PG. Yeah. It's interesting too, though, because we talk about the intensity of Texas Chase. I'm sure there's like this weird aura to like the first half aura. of the movie. Aura. Cousin of era. <laughs> um, but there's like this weird aura of uneasiness that happens in the movie, but there's really not a lot going on until Hitchhiker shows up. Right. And it, even then, it's still kind of like, it's weird, but it's not like, oh my God, you're going to die, die. Um, but we know they're going to die because the title tells us they're going to die because the opening narration tells us they're going to die. Right. Like, no, no, no. But what I'm saying is, is like, but the thing is, like, the first half of that movie is kind of a hangout movie. Right. Very much like Eggshells, which I thought is really yes. interesting now yeah. in retrospect. Yeah. Where it's just them, like, kind of shooting the shit about stuff that doesn't matter, like astrology and. Right. You know, that kind of stuff. And, like, it, it is a movie that, like, for about 20 minutes, there's not a lot that actually happens. Right. But yet you're still like, oh, Jesus Christ, like, what's coming? You know they're doomed. And so there's this pall that's cast over the movie, even while they're hanging out and doing nothing. You're like, oh, these are lambs going off to slaughter and they just don't know it you know yeah no totally um but yeah like it's just it's like especially when they're just like in the van um you know it's just like i was like wow this is just eggshells in a van yeah you know at a certain point and it, again eggshells is a movie where like down in the basement there's this crazy weird evilness lurking you know that they're sort of unaware of until they stumble across it, which again is sort of the premise of Texas Chainsaw where, yeah. Oh, we're going to go visit the old Hardesty house. Let's just walk over here and see if they have some <laughs> gasoline. Oops. I'm dead. You and know, it, and now I'm going to be dinner. It's impossible for us now in 2023 to divorce ourselves from the iconography of Leatherface. Um, the pop culture impact of Leatherface. And we're all just like so aware of what Texas Chainsaw Massacre is. Most of us have seen the shot of him, you know, coming out of the kill room and then sliding the big door shut. How they had charity aisles. The fact that it manages, like I would love to time travel back to this movie's initial release 
because again, we're talking about the inevitability of what's going to happen to this group of kids. We're talking about the pall of doom that's cast over even their sort of casual hangings out. We know what's coming and yet it manages to be like the biggest nightmare surprise when Leatherface first appears and whacks the guy with the hammer and shuts that door. Like you're just like, wait, what the, what the fuck or what, what, what am I in now? Even though you know that this is like a, a movie about kids who are going to get killed. Everything about the movie has told you like, this is coming. This is coming. When it yeah. comes, it's like, you still aren't ready for it. You're never prepared for it. No, no. no. And that's, and again, I think that's the, the, the genius of it. Like, it's just, you think you can be prepared and you're not. It's funny. I was reading again. Um, so apparently they brought one of the first cities they brought this to was San Francisco. Uh, and again, I'm probably telling you shit that, you know, so like, I apologize, but like, so apparently what they did is they, the, the financiers who were financing the distribution of the movie, um, they tacked it on to a screening of the original Pelham one, two, three, taking a Pelham one, two, three. And so by the end of the movie, half the theater had walked out. They were throwing garbage to the point where I think they ruined the movie screen and they had to shut the theater down for a few days to repair it. And people <laughs> were actually fighting in the lobby afterwards. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Like, I think it was something that the producer distributor guys were planning because they knew they, they had something that was very different and they had to create sort of like an aura or no- notorious nature around it because that's how you sell a movie ticket back then. Sure. And it worked. And it worked. Because this is a movie that was made arguably somewhere between sixty to $140,000. Right. Like, people were making, like, 12 bucks a day if they were lucky. Um, and then it went on, like, through all the different theatrical releases to end up making, like, $30 million, which, yeah. you know, until Halloween came along, it was the most profitable independent horror movie ever made in america it made um, it made the mob very rich it did make the mob very rich unfortunately um sorry mob i don't mean that like that you guys you guys can keep your money i love you guys <laughs> don't um, come for us mob yeah no 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 we're we, i i'm 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 with an italian it's fun we're cool <laughs> um the I authors I of the that. in search of darkness coffee table book were assassinated last night Oh God, please no. Um oh, I've heard so many stories because Brian's uncle was a cop too. So it was oh, like wow. all, all sorts of stuff going on <laughs> on the East Coast back in the eighties. Uh but anyway, so it's like it's to me like I I miss I miss the surprise in horror movies. I miss that sort of word of mouth of horror movies. So when it's like when there's a movie that'll break out a little bit and everybody starts talking about it that's you know i'm for so long i'm kind of removed a little bit these days but like i was in such in a profession that just everything was so laid out for me that it was hard to get surprised by a movie i think the last movie that i was genuinely surprised during was probably malignant (laughs) um (laughs) because i was just like i was not that i knew what to expect but i was just expecting like sort of a weird psychological horror movie and then i was like wait you have a parasitic twin in the back here oh shit okay (laughs) crazy james wan you nuts um you know so it's like 
I I love the element of surprise. And I'm like you where I would love a time machine to go back to the seventies. Of course, I feel like I'm, again, I've always talked about like how I feel like I'm a hippie living in a different time period anyway, but I would love to one experience people seeing Texas Chainsaw and the exorcist. I think seeing those reactions to people we're so jaded these days. I want that pure visceral reaction. And I don't know that we get it because I don't feel like kids today, you know, and again, I don't mean to like, say these all-encompassing things but i don't know that they engage with media the way people did back then because there's just a lot more to take their attention and i don't mean that in a a disparaging way it's hard it's hard to put your phone down during a movie you know um i do it because i'm an old but Hmm. i don't really fault kids if they do it like i don't like it but i get it because they're raised with devices so what else are they gonna do that's what they know yeah. So I don't fault them for it. It's 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 the culture of it now. So I don't know that if you were to release a movie like Texas Chainsaw now that it would be this the same thing. Like it's, you know, I would love to go back and see people losing their minds and fighting in lobbies and throwing up and throwing garbage and don't throw garbage in your seats, guys. I don't mean no. like that, but you know, I want just. But I like having that that idea of a pure visceral reaction to a piece of art. Because I don't, I, I just, like, yeah, we all love Barbie and Oppenheimer, but, like, <laughs> it wasn't, like, you know, it wasn't that. Right. Like, there's, it's, it's just different. Well, so, and that, that, that visceral reaction is what Toby Hooper is so often going after in his filmography and doesn't get it you know the way that he gets it with texas chainsaw and we kind of opened the episode saying this was you know the best and worst thing to happen to him and again you could make a case that poltergeist was the best and worst thing to happen to him you know um oh yeah but texas chainsaw is the movie because poltergeist has largely been taken away from him and we don't need to relitigate that but we're on one side um we're on the right side we're on the correct side we but will because... relitigate it though. <laughs> we will <laughs> when we, we do there. the episode for sure. Yeah, I just don't want every episode to turn into like, hey, here's our fucking thing. Um because it has been taken away from him by a lot of people. Even the people that take it away from him point to Texas Chainsaw and say, "Okay, yes, that's a great film and he never made another one." And therefore it was a fluke. And the idea that a movie this good, yes, of course, movies are miracles. And yes, of course, like for a movie to become a lifelong classic, a lot of things had to go right. And a lot of things did go right in the making of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. More things went wrong, but sure, let's focus on the things that went right. Um, But to suggest that a filmmaker makes a movie this powerful by accident that he, that he accidentally stumbles into creating a masterpiece shows no understanding of how movies are made. Yeah. I think the one thing, (coughs) Oh no. I, I would say the one thing that I think Toby did stumble into was a career in horror. Because again, when I was reading this interview, he wanted to just be an art house director. Yeah, he, yeah. He had no intention of being the horror guy, sure. and he d- wanted to break out of it and just never could. 
Because that's true of is, most of the masters, you know, it was yeah, like John Carpenter wanted Craven, to make Westerns and, you know, like. Yeah. Craven, I think there were, I remember reading once that Craven wanted to do musicals at some point in his career and never got to do it. But then we got music in the heart. So whatever. Hence all um, the dance numbers in Swamp Thing. Right. Uh, we do get a dance number sort of in Scream 2, though. So that was fun. Um, but like, you know, so this is a guy who. For for him and for Kim Henkel back in like 72, 73, they knew their foot in the door would come through horror because that's how it was for everybody at that point. Mm-hmm. And then, oops, I just made probably right. one of the most visceral, shocking horror movies to ever be created. Right. Um, this is what people are yeah. going to give me money to do now, you know? Yeah. And I was reading, too, because I'd, I'd, I'd known that Freakin and Hooper were friends for decades. I knew yeah. that. Yeah. I didn't realize that Friedkin is the reason that Henkel and Hooper ended up at Universal. Yeah. Um, because he kind of threw his clout around and said, you need to bring these guys in. And they basically had a production bungalow to do mostly nothing until like Eaten Alive came along. Yeah. Um, so it just, it's really interesting because for me, like Friedkin literally, you know, rest his soul, couldn't even get financing secured on his final movie that just came out in Paramount Plus. The Kane Mutiny Court Martial. Yeah. Where yeah. basically Guillermo had to co-sign right. for him on production documents just so he just so William Friedkin <laughs> could get where, financing. This is where we're at now. And it's just it blows my mind that these guys who basically changed filmmaking in so many different ways, like Friedkin did it time and time again. Um Hooper definitely did it at least once. Um, arguably maybe two to three times, depending on how you define that level of influence, which we'll get into a little bit more, I think, when we talk about Texas Chainsaw 2 and also um, uh, for me, Salem's Lot. I think it changed the game for TV movies, Yeah, um, which I think is, is something that people don't appreciate enough. Yeah. Um, and yet, like, these are guys who later on in their careers like had to beg to get movies to be made. Right. Like what what in the absolute F is that? Yeah, there's like, no no appreciation for the old guard in Hollywood. No, and as we lose more of these these guys, like it's you know, everybody wants to like glomer on about Scorsese and this or that or whatever. And I'm just like, put some respect on the name of Martin Scorsese because <laughs> like for like a multitude of reasons, but like yeah. there's going to be, there's going to come a day when he is no longer going to be part of this world and we are going to be lesser of a society for it. Of and I think, you know, when you look at the risks Friedkin took throughout his career, the risks Toby t- took often, you know, early on in his career, like you don't get, you don't have directors with those kind of balls anymore. I'm sorry. Yeah. I think the closest we have is Guillermo. But there's even sort of a safety to his in some ways, I think. And I think now, especially after winning an Oscar, you know, it's different. He has become a brand, which isn't his fault, you know, and I don't think he's branded himself necessarily, but he has become a brand. And so with that, there's a certain degree of expectation. It's a little harder to take risks when you're a brand. Yeah. But also, too, it's funny that there's probably more unmade Guillermo del Toro projects than there's actually actualized Guillermo <laughs> sure. del Toro projects. 
sure. which shows you just how messed up Hollywood is. Right. You know, the machine itself will just destroy creativity any way that it can. Right. And it's it, like you said, like movies are miracles in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, you know, so even if I don't love a movie that comes out these days, I'm just kind of like, well, at least you got to the, the finish line because not everybody does. Uh, Texas Chainsaw is for sure a miracle. We're almost out of time, but I would be remiss if I didn't give you a space to talk about the game. Oh my God. The game, bro, is like the most amazing thing ever. <laughs> Holy shit. So, because like we were kind of holding off on it. And then um, one of the guys, uh, it's Ilphonic, I think it is, um, reached out and was like, oh, would you like a code? I was like, no way. Um, and so you go in and then you either get to play as like a victim or one of the family members. And the main, the main three family members are of course, cook, hitchhiker and Leatherface. but they also have like sort of two made for the game family members. And one is Johnny and he's like a tough guy. And then there's Sissy who's like, just like, she feels like she's like, would be pulled right out of like the remake era of of Texas Chainsaw. And she like blows like poison in your face and dances around and sings and shit. Yeah, she's creepy. <laughs> um, but like, it is first of all the the attention to detail that they put into these games. Like, I I love what they did with the Friday the Thirteenth games because it was like literally being in a Friday the Thirteenth movie every time you're playing it. It's a perfect, and it was just like the attention to the like wallpapers and things like that, and like just furniture it was spot on so you're like really in this and like you start off like in like the underground caverns underneath um the sawyer house often or it's like there's like three i think it's like three or four different maps uh one is a slaughterhouse one is a sawyer house uh one is the gas station and like you have to like make your way through and it's like it's just a gift of a game for horror fans um we honestly like hitchhikers our favorite to play as because he's so much fun um because i this is how insidious this game has become into our lives where we're like we walk around a house and we actually like get your feel like we talk <laughs> like the hitchhiker when we brian like almost lost his mind when he saw an interview with edwin neal and he talks like a normal guy he's like wait he sounds like that <laughs> and i know i think edwin neal does the voice for the game and oh, sean Wayland. Awesome. Sean Whalen does the body motion capture for it. Okay. And the, the movement is so pitch perfect. Um, and like, you have to like, and if you're the victim, you have to try to figure out how to escape. And like, sometimes you have to turn the generators off so you can get out one of the electrified fences. Um, and it's like, you have to get bone scraps so you can stab somebody if you want to. Grandpa's in there too. He's not a playable character, but he's always there. And it's fun because grandpa is like, how you sense the different victims as they're running around. So you have to give them blood to make them stronger. <laughs> they have to feed them and they've got like the blood buckets everywhere. It's like, it's just so amazing. Um, but the funny thing is like these things, it's weird because like when you're playing Friday the 13th, like nobody ever not wanted to be Jason. Okay. But with the Texas Chainsaw games, nobody ever wants to be Leatherface, which kind of blows me away. Because you, every game has to at least have Leatherface. Okay. So it can be Leatherface and two other of the family members between the other four. And it's like, now it's like, for some reason, nobody wants to be Leatherface. I mean, it's harder because he's like lumbering, so he can't quite sneak into places the way the hitchhiker can. And he doesn't have the same abilities as like the cook can really hear people and stuff. 
Um, so it's, I, I get it, but it's just like, I'm like, you guys just like made Leatherface like sort of like kind of lame in a way, but it's not because <laughs> he's cool and he'll, he'll mess you up. But it's just like, I, we have played this game for probably like, I want to say maybe like 60 hours at this point. Wow. Um, cause like, it'll just be at night. And if I'm working like after work and I'm working on like book work or whatever, I'll just tell Brian, like put it on and <laughs> just go for it. Um, but it's like, it's just the attention to detail and you're so immersed. I was like, I, I like, if I would have had the money, I literally would have sent you a PS5 and the code. <laughs> oh, that's like, very nice to, of you. You have to play Like we have to figure out at some point to get you to play this game because I swear to God, if there was ever one video game made for you, Patrick, it's this one. <laughs> and it's like easy enough where even I could play and I'm not very good. Um, you know, I'm not, I like, I'll play stuff here and there, but like, I'm not very good. Like, you don't want me in like a third person shooter game or anything or first person shooter game. You don't want that. <laughs> I'm not good. Um, but I can do Texas Chainsaw and it's just, it's such a gift. Like, it's just, and it's beautiful. Like it, it, for me, it's like, it really feels like, it almost feels like somehow Daniel Pearl shot this video game, which is impossible because it's a computer rendering, right, right. but it's so beautiful in the way that like, it looks and it feels it's it's perfect i love it so much so if there's anybody out there who's been sort of on the fence about it like trust me it's well worth it it's on pc it's on the playstation stuff it's on xbox it's on all of them uh it's totally worth it it's super duper fun um i thought the repeatability of it might get a little like tedious i i never get tired of it at all but yeah we like you know like uh when we were watching last night when Hitchhiker was like running after people and there's like a part of the game where he's like, oh, you want to play a hiding game? And I was literally, I literally said it during Texas <laughs> because that's how connected I am with this movie and the game. Like, it's so perfect. Um, but yeah, Hitchhiker's become our favorite to play as the, the family. Nice. Like, we're good at with Leatherface and you get different Leatherfaces as you level up too. So we're up to uh, Pretty Lady Leatherface. Right, right. No, we have grandma also. We have grandma Leatherface as well. Um, and Leatherface yeah. is Kane Hodder, right? It is Kane Hodder. Okay. And I love that they even have the little boots. He's wearing the little boots, which nice. also like, like Gunnar Hansen's like six something. Like, I don't know why he needed boots on top of everything. <laughs> it's such a funny little detail to me, like boots with a heel, not just boots, but boots right. with a heel. That I was, I that for some reason that detail to me will always stick out, especially in the end when he's running out into the street and he sees little heels clicking on the asphalt, and you're like, "That's like, why would you put him in heels? He doesn't need them." <laughs> but somehow, I always that that's the one detail. Um, also, I don't like that the fact that the sausages really look like dicks. Oh yikes! In Texas Chainsaw the movie, no, the one that Franklin is eating, it's like oh yeah, such a penis. It is such a penis. And so like, is Franklin, so, really, for that matter. I, here's the thing. I used to hate Franklin. I really did. He was kind of up there with me with, like, annoying characters. And then I thought about the plight of somebody who would be handicapped in the 70s and the shit that they would have to endure. And I think, I mean, one, I know that, like, everybody was just kind of grating on each other's nerves at different points in production on Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. So a lot of the animosity you see, especially between him and Marilyn, um is real yeah but also you know think about just like how shitty that would be like at yeah. that point in time 
the only way that Franklin on a road trip can go and piss is to go be put on the, the side of a highway and piss into a coffee can. Like, how degrading is that? That's that sucks. Like, I would be pissed off too. You know what I mean? And then he uh, falls down because of the truck. I think the movie is kind of brilliant in that it makes him sympathetic, yes, but also unlikable. Yeah, I, it's a really hard thing to do. And again, like yeah. I said, for years I hated Franklin. I was just like, oh my god, Franklin. But then it was like, I just there's a I, I don't know if it just comes with age or whatever. But I was just like, man, what a fucking like hard existence to have yes. to get through because our society didn't give a shit back then. Right. They right. barely give a shit now. You know what I mean? Like we're no better. I mean, we're better, but we still have so many different strides to make for for folks who are differently able. Right. And yes. like. And Franklin, being a character in a wheelchair in a horror movie in the 70s is pretty much a landmark. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? And yeah. to show what he was dealing with, uh, and I think I even talked about this in the documentary, it was like we had this whole, we had thousands of men coming back from Vietnam dealing with all of these like physical things to deal with and even mental health and things like that that mm-hmm. our society just didn't deal with. We just turned our, we just turned away from it. And I think there's parts of Texas Chainsaw that are a reflection of when society doesn't do enough to respect humanity. You know, we see it in the slaughterhouse sort of stories and things like that. Yeah. Um, again, why it's so, so fascinating because there's so many different things that you could tie this to. You could tie it to vegetarianism. You could tie it to sort of how technology robs people of their livelihoods. You can tie it to how society treats people who are differently able like it's again i could probably talk another two hours about different things because i think that that's just the earmark of the brilliance of texas chainsaw because there's just so many different things you could take away from it there and i don't think any of it is wrong no i agree and 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 the fact that it's not literally about any of those things and yet could be read so many different ways I think it's so fascinating that, you know, they didn't sit down and say like, well, let's make Franklin a metaphor for Vietnam vets who are seen as an inconvenience to more able-bodied people. But, and yet, you know, that reading is totally there and, and totally on the nose. And it's like, it's, it's just such a great movie. (laughs) It is. It is. Yeah, I mean, I feel like shit, but I can totally keep going. <laughs> yeah, but, no, it's know. it's it's amazing. Uh, up next, we have Eaten Alive, which have you ever seen Eaten Alive? I have not. This is going to be my first time, which I cannot believe I didn't see a Toby Hooper movie with Robert England. Like nice. I saw The Mangler. Uh, well, sure. Uh, yeah, you know. I love Look. The Mangler. I'm hoping. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping my revisit will be better, but. The last time I, I watched it, I was. Eh. I can almost guarantee that this revisit will be better. Um, a because I think you'll just appreciate a lot of things about it more, like the set design and the ambition, and B because having gone through all of Toby movies, uh, Toby's movies up to that point, I think you're going to be <laughs> much more on its wavelength. Yeah, no, I I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, I'm really excited to be eaten alive because, again, like I said, I haven't seen it. So this is like, 
again, that's why I'm really grateful to get to do something like this because I do feel like I'm sort of getting to like have this like education as I'm going. Because mm-hmm. I know I, there's a lot that I do know, but there's a lot I don't know. Sure. You know, I'll never pretend to know it all. That's just not me. Um, so <laughs> like it's so I'm it's just because like I'll watch something and even something like Texas Chainsaw that I've now watched like dozens and dozens of times. Like I will start going down research rabbit holes because I love it. I just love it. Um, so I'm really like, again, I was reading a little bit about how the, the live stuff came about. Yeah. So I'm really fascinated to kind of see what that was, how it fares and how it kind of yeah. connects to Texas Chainsaw and to, I'm, I'm guessing also eggshells to a degree as well. Um, it's, yeah, it's interesting because it sort of reimagines a lot of Texas Chainsaw as community theater in a way we'll talk about it but um as a theater kid i'm in you'll see what i mean i don't know i was so excited when arrow put out the blu-ray because it has introduction by toby hooper and i put it on and i was like i can't wait to hear him talk about one of his movies and this was before i knew toby doesn't really talk about his movies very much so it's him and he goes like hey this is a blu-ray of eating alive hope you enjoy the colors and then that's it and i'm like oh motherfucker (laughs) that's all i'm getting but hopefully you will enjoy the colors I, I, I'm sure I will. And look, as long as Toby got paid to say those words, <laughs> exactly. Right. That's all I got to say. It get, does, get paid, Mr. Hooper. It kicks off uh, a rough period for him though, where he has a lot of like starts and stops and he leaves a lot of movies. He even leaves eaten alive in the edit. Um, It's not really until Salem's lot that his, his career kind of writes itself again. Uh, but then, yeah, there's something after Venom might be after that. And he ends up quitting Venom too. Oh, we'll see. Anyway, thank you guys very much for listening to this. We could keep talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but uh, Heather's sick and I have to pee. So we're not going to continue <laughs> talking about it. Uh, but we will be back next month with a show on Eaten Alive. Uh, Heather, thanks for talking about this movie with me. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's been super fun. Bye, everybody. Bye.